There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. Hello. With the 2024 election coming more into focus, this week's episode of From the Silo is a words matter from August 2022. Norman Kavita break down Biden's polling, as well as the most topical issues of the day. We hope you enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. There's still significant ways to go on a winding, uh, difficult road. And Dr. Kavita Patel. Can you imagine having to have like your life in imminent danger, Norm, and having your doctor say, I'm sorry, I need to go find somebody else and we need to go fill out this paper. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we're going to touch on a couple of areas with the theme of why isn't Joe Biden getting credit for all the hard work that he actually deserves credit for? along with some recent developments, topic of Kansas, reproductive justice, and always trying to understand what matters for the midterms, not just this year, but for future years as well. Hope you like the show. All right, so as we set this up, we wanted to talk about what is seemingly the imminent passage of the the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And it adds to what I would, and thinking about this, Norm, I just want to reflect on this. I do think this might be reflective in my lifetime of the most significant kind of domestic and global policy in any one Congress and, and therefore might actually create like the history books around having an effective Congress for all the talk and like the lowest approval ratings I could imagine. This might be, if they can get this through, usher in the, um, the reconciliation package I think it might have seriously some of the most uh, important provisions that generations really will benefit from. So it's, it, and so it does reflect this productive two years of not just the Congress, as I mentioned, but also this presidency. And here's a clip of words from White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre talking about the success of the Biden administration. This is several weeks ago prior to discussion on the Inflation Reduction Act. We are focused on things like today signing this bipartisan gun reform legislation, which will, again, save lives. Do we have more work to do? Absolutely. Uh, we're going to continue to, I was talking about inflation and how important uh, that is a priority for this president and how we have seen gas prices go down by close to 30 cents a gallon the past 25 plus days. Uh, that is something that the president's going to continue to work on because we still need to give uh, Americans' relief. We saw, we have seen an economy that has bounced back from when he walked in to this administration over a year ago. 
uh, after dealing or still dealing really in reality with a once in a generation uh, pandemic and how he, we've been able to bring back jobs uh, that we lost pre-pandemic uh, and also just uh, continue to, to do that work. How we've seen unemployment at 3.6%, the jobs number that we saw last week at 375,000 jobs created in the last month. All of these things are the th- are, is what the president's going to continue to focus on. How do we deliver? Somebody was asking Jake about uh, USICA, also BIA, and all the work that we're putting behind that, because that is a top priority uh, for this administration, because we need to, com- to continue to compete uh, with countries like China. So there is so much work to be done uh, that we are, the president's going to focus on and deliver. There are a lot of things to be critical at times, different snapshots of the administration when they kind of in the midst of, you know, double nearing what seems like about double digit inflation, job growth, but unfortunately, way too many stories, mostly in the popular press around people who are not benefiting from programs or government programs, which are hiding dollars from people such as COVID recovery funds, et cetera. But when you cut back and look at it, it does feel like the story is not necessarily what came out of Corinne's mouth. The story is really the success that is very clear to me, even kind of reflecting on it and hopefully to you has not translated to approval ratings for the president. Maybe we could argue to some of the polls in the recent primaries, which we can discuss, or just in bolstering the sense that Democrats have like firmly kind of taken the position of reflecting the values of where the country is today. Norm, what's, what's your uh, assessment of what's happening here? So first, we need the obligatory caveat, Kavita, which is there's still significant ways to go on a winding and uh, difficult road to get the Inflation Reduction Act enacted. It's going to have to go through a series of poison pill amendments offered by Republicans in the Senate. It does not yet have Kristen Cinema on board. Cinema appears to be holding out in part to get rid of a provision that would tax appropriately carried interest, a big break for billionaires. It's hard for me to imagine that a bill that would be by far the most sweeping climate change reform in history that would restore affordable health insurance for millions of Americans that would actually reduce inflation and deficits uh, over its 10-year period and would do a whole lot more could be blocked for a provision to benefit uh, billionaires and multi-billionaires. But that having been said, I'm going to repeat something that I've said on the program before and that I've said many other times. If you and I had been sitting at Joe Biden's inaugural and had said, you know, we've got a 50-50 Senate, we have a House with a margin of three, On almost anything that matters, there will not be a single Republican that will join in either house. But in his first year, Joe Biden will get $3 trillion in COVID relief, in safety net protection, and in infrastructure, and will end up having more judges confirmed than any other first year presidency. You would have said, oh, come on. But after all of that, Biden ended up with an approval rating lower than Trump's. 
And now if we had said in his second year, he will get this package plus a whole lot more, including relief for veterans who had suffered horribly from toxic exposure, including even more, at least gun safety legislation, and yet more judges, we would have said that's not likely either. It's a reminder that the presidency is a marathon and not a sprint. But to get to the core of your question, I think we have a few things to consider. The first is that the fandango that Biden and the country had to go through in the first year over Build Back Better, what would have been if it had passed, absolutely historic. It would have ranked his first year with Lyndon Johnson's and FDR's. But Joe Manchin strung it out for an entire year. The administration made a mistake of just referring to it by a meaningless slogan. And the whole debate became about whether it would be three trillion, two trillion, or whatever it might be. And then it failed. And it was a symbol to people of ineptitude. The second thing was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And let us add to the list of accomplishments assassinating the horrible leader of al-Qaeda who had succeeded bin Laden, al-Zawahiri, after we had withdrawn from Afghanistan. But the press coverage of that withdrawal and the chaos that occurred in the week in which people were leaving left its mark. It was also a measure of a rebellion against Biden. And frankly, a press corps, uh, a mainstream press corps, that to show that it's fair, decided it would give at least as much, if not more, negative coverage to Biden as it had to Trump, despite the fact that Trump deserved it with nonstop corruption and Biden does not. And then one other factor I think is that Biden is not young. And I think the image that people have had of him even if it's inaccurate from what we know from firsthand exposure by people to him, of a guy who's just not with the energy required for this job, all of that has hurt and it makes it very, very difficult to get credit for the incredible things that have been done. What an anomaly. I agree. And, and I would only just add to that. He did not have to, Biden, when president, especially first kind of first two years of administration, as you know, Norm, the initial kind of push is really to, number one, get probably the best and the brightest. There's always this renewed energy to find, you know, net, scan who is kind of the best on each of these topic areas, not just in the Democratic Party, but period. But then there's also kind of a loyalty factor. People often, even high level positions are appointed based on who was involved in the campaign who stuck by Biden's side, even when the going was tough on the primaries and some combination thereof. I think the fact that COVID was kind of occurring in the midst of all of this created a dynamic where Biden probably over-indexed on kind of the loyalty factor, people that were known quantities, and not necessarily thinking about, you know, how can we make sure that we reach far and wide for these wide swaths? And I know Biden himself put an incredibly important point on diversity. Which was very, which was clear in some of his initial announcements, even if they didn't get confirmed. But I think it was clear that they were trying to do everything. And at the same time, really did see that, you know, at the end of the day, it's Steve Rochetti, it's Bruce Reed, it's a very tight circle that really kind of runs policy shop, thought shops in, in the administration. 
And I actually do think that hurt a little bit because the inability for Biden, who likes to be out there in the public because of COVID, uh, combined with, you know, people around him who are incredible and, ta- and talented and loyal, but maybe not the best communicators or even a communicator, just not something that Rashetti and Reed do to be candid or claim for that matter. And then on, on top of it, just a country that is still trying to like come out from whatever it is that we call this time period. I think that really those three strikes against are one of the explanations for this, not just hitting the polls, but this inability to recover from the polls. So I, I have been trying, and you're right, I should, I should not celebrate the Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act just yet. I will say I have been involved for now over 10 years on the drug pricing part of that piece of legislation. And I, I know that there might be parliamentarian issues, there might be other issues, Republican uh, Christmas bills on the budget votorama that they tack on ornaments. But I do feel very confident that this is going to happen. Maybe it's wrong, Norm. But I do think that when you take climate, drugs, and I'm even willing, I know that uh, it might be shocking to hear, to hear me say this, if giving Kristen Cinema $15 billion back in tax credits to wealthy funds gets her to just agree, be done, call it a day, start the vote, start the clock, get the House to give the up or down vote, I'm, f- I'm fine with it because there's so much in there that is important. So that's, uh, yeah, that's one of the places I would leave it, I guess I'd say. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'll make one other point here before we move on uh, to the next segment. Democrats have uh, a terrible flaw in believing that policies speak for themselves. And if ever we have a case study that shows that policy successes do not speak for themselves, it is in this disjunction between all of these incredible things that have been done and Biden's low approval rating. And if I could go back, I would have uh, here again, you know, these are saws that we've repeated, but they bear repeating again. I would have had at least a weekly briefing initiated by the president on COVID and what the administration was doing uh, and showing a sense of empathy for people whose lives were continuing to be disrupted by school closures and the other disruptions that had happened. I would have acted very differently as inflation began to go up, especially with gas prices. And instead of focusing on the slogan, Build Back Better, I would have as had the president travel around the country to promote specific parts of that plan, which are popular among Democrats, independents, and Republicans, from the child tax credit to universal pre-K to the child care reforms. And I think the failure to do all of those things helped to contribute to the demise of uh, Build Back Better as it was, but also didn't give the administration the ability to show the American people all the good things that were happening and that he was fighting for them. So there are many lessons to be learned here. And I hope as we move forward with the remainder of the Biden presidency and with a Democratic Congress that they learn some of them. Yeah, my final prescription, and then Norm, we can go to the next segment. Um, I will even say it more plainly than that. I will just say people don't necessarily, when people are hurting that much, there's a psychology that even what, no matter who the party in power is, it's a very common phenomenon that kind of there's a sense of us versus them because 
whatever the cause or factors were for that party to come into power, whoever's occupying the White House or, or Congress. And when a country is hurting, as clearly it still is, there is a sense of us versus them. It's actually a, a very well-known phenomenon in any kind of dynamic, but much less one of this national exposure. So when we get into the us versus them, it becomes even more important to understand, which is why I kind of have always encouraged White House staff. I've all, White House staff, are at the, we're at the season now where they're all looking for jobs. We're two years out and people are declaring, I'm going to stay in, I'm going to be in past midterms, or I'm going to get out now and not get caught up. And I always encourage people like go out and do your trade or like go out and figure out who you really are, because then you actually understand like what's happening in the world versus this kind of bubble that you've had to live in by the nature of your job. You know, if uh, if and when uh, they pass the Inflation Reduction Act, if we can get this done before September, reflecting on your last point, the Senate has to ramp up its schedule in the fall to confirm all of the executive nominees plus the judges that have been pending and delayed and blocked by Republicans because you're right. We're going to see an exodus of people, not just in the White House, but throughout the administration. And you've got to have those next tiers in place or your second two years will be a very, very difficult time. Let's move on to our next topic. This week, we saw an incredible Somewhat predictable primaries. Uh, I'm so glad I won't have to keep talking about Trump endorsing Eric, which Eric in Missouri, Eric Greitens is out. That uh, is hopefully in the column of some small, decent wins for humanity. But we had a big win in the column of decency for humanity where Kansas as a state voted to maintain their right to reproductive access in their constitution, codifying in incredible contrast to other similar and even more conservative states, which have actually done quite the opposite and worked to accelerate, I'm looking at my home state of Texas, or to accelerate their ban on any reproductive access, including abortion, since overturning Roe v. Wade. Idaho is a state that I've become unfortunately all too familiar with, which, by the way, had one of the most strict abortion restrictions uh, prior to what will take effect in the later in the month of August, which is considered the strictest, Idaho had from fetal viability and heartbeat health bills had basically run most of the providers who gave kind of services in these areas, providers for abortion, providers for high risk pregnancies, even many of them have left the state because the prior sets of rules and regulations were so strict. What will take place on August 25th is so strict because and, and has been an important, I think, core of the lawsuit filed by Merrick Garland on behalf of the United States of America out of the Department of Justice. I think it's brilliant because not only is this one of the strictest states, does not allow for rape and incest and only allows for exceptions in the case of the life of a mother, in which case there need to be multiple physicians that actually can like concurrently weigh in and document can you imagine having to have like your life in imminent danger, Norm, and having your doctor say, I'm sorry, I need to go find somebody else and we need to go fill out this paper that I have to download from Adobe Acrobat on this website so that I can then go get it to a sheriff? That's what's actually happening. And that will take place on August 25th. So the timing could not have been better for both Merrick Garland in a state where they had every reason to file a suit because it actually hangs on a federal law, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act and PALA giving the Department of Justice the right to go into that state, but also at a, a very important moment for the state of Kansas. 
Let's first listen briefly to Merrick Garland discussing the merits of this case that they filed against Idaho. Today, the Justice Department filed a lawsuit against the state of Idaho. The suit seeks to hold invalid the state's criminal prohibition on providing abortions as applied to women who are suffering medical emergencies. Under a federal law known as the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, or EMTALA, every hospital that receives Medicare funds must provide necessary stabilizing treatment to a patient who arrives at an emergency room suffering from a medical condition that could place their life or health in serious jeopardy. When a hospital determines that an abortion is the medical treatment necessary to stabilize a patient's emergency medical condition, it is required by federal law to provide that treatment. As detailed in our complaint, Idaho's law would make it a criminal offense for doctors to provide the emergency medical treatment that federal law requires. Norm, let's discuss much to to talk about here, everything. Maybe let's start with Kansas. Well, we know, among other things, uh, Kavita, that the uh, Democratic Governors Association is out with their first ad attacking the Republican nominee for governor in Michigan. And it is all, uh, it shows clips of her when asked. So no exceptions for rape or incest, no exceptions. And another uh, time saying, no exceptions at all, period. So we know now, after the Kansas experience, that this is going to be a prime attack mode for Democrats since most of the Republican candidates out there, not just the extreme Trumpist ones, but all of them, uh, practically speaking, are standing behind the Supreme Court's decision And basically what we're seeing in states in so many places, eliminating all restrictions. And of course, that includes one of the clips uh, on the the Michigan uh, gubernatorial candidate was about the uh, 10-year-old rape victim. And what we see from Kansas is that a very clever and aggressive campaign to make it clear that what this initiative was about Uh, resulted in a massive increase in turnout from what anybody expected. The lion's share of that increase in turnout was from women. This is a Republican state. That meant there were a whole lot of Republican women and no doubt some Republican men who uh, decided that this was an important enough issue that they would turn out. If this is a template for the future, It means that one of the dilemmas we've had with Democrats, a fear that people would not turn out, that they would be disillusioned, believing that it hadn't worked the way they wanted. What usually happens in these midterm contests is your base thinks that they're going to get everything. And when they don't, they get upset that this, along with the potential passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, could really get voters riled up. And uh, I think Republicans are deeply vulnerable on this. And we know from what a lot of Republicans are saying privately, including their campaign people, is they're scared to death that they're about to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and expectation that they were going to win a whole lot of contests. Still very early in the game. A lot can happen. But I think we've struck a nerve here. And, you know, John Roberts tried 
not because of the political implications, I suspect, more because of what he saw this would do to the reputation of the Roberts Supreme Court, to change the Dobbs decision, to just accept the Mississippi law, which was 15 weeks. If that had happened, I'm not at all sure that we would be getting the same kind of backlash. But what we've seen with what's happening around the country is it's as if you pick the rock up and you see all the maggots underneath. We're seeing extremists willing to, even happy to see women die because they're stopping abortions. And we're seeing a number of candidates, Republican candidates, saying we're coming after contraception next. So the worst fears that people have are being realized. And we're not just going to see people in blue states who say, hey, it doesn't affect me. They're seeing that this could lead to the worst outcome. And I think one of the themes I saw Chris Murphy of Connecticut pursuing it, and we'll see others, what the Republicans want to do if they take control of the avenues of power is to have a nationwide ban on abortion without exceptions. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that um, not only was Tuesday vote in Kansas kind of a referendum and a very clear Republican stronghold in Kansas, but it also triggered, as you point out, you know, Michigan and then a number of even states like California, where nobody would really kind of seemingly question, you know, reproductive rights or its future. But I think that there is now at least choice organizations have been seeing the Kansas as a model for what to do and how to mobilize a population to send a strong signal, both to Democrats and Republicans, for what's important. And that'll include voters who are going to probably have to weigh in on this in California, along with some of the more California and Vermont, along with some of the conservative states, Kentucky, Montana, et cetera. And I, I have talked to a couple of... Um, I would say more kind of traditional Republican colleagues who have all said, Marm, and I know you also have your conversations, curious if this has come up, my kind of conservative friends who I think would have said that, you know, the language is more of what Roberts would have, their comfort level against abortion falls a little bit more. And it reminds me, Norm, of the, uh, remember when Bill Frist was majority leader in partial birth abortions, you know, there was this, which is not a a thing, by the way, but that was how it was kind of politically and conveniently characterized to just be so gruesome to say that. But it reminds me of that. So talking to some of my more kind of traditional conservative colleagues who actually deplore and detest Trump, a couple of interesting comments. They said that, yeah, the Roberts kind of uh, hints were more of what they would have wanted to see and they do fear and they think that it will be important for the Republican Party to get some of this out of their system, even if it means Trump running in 2024, and then to finally have like a resounding defeat to put to rest this insanity. And I paused on a moment on the phone and I said, that's what you took away from Kansas, that Trump needs to run and he needs to lose. <laughs> and so, so we have our work cut out for us. That's, I'm, just, I'm just curious what you were hearing, if anything in response from uh, Republicans or even what you were kind of seeing on social media? You know, the old cliche of the dog chasing the bus and then catching it really applies here. They had spent so long railing against Roe and suddenly it happens and now they're seeing the backlash and uh, the slippery slope that they face. You know, back 20 years ago, it was, look, we'll have exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother, even for some, the life and health of the mother. 
Now it's no exceptions. And if you as a candidate try and take a stand, a Republican candidate, saying there should be exceptions, you're going to have attacks coming from the radical right. I would like to see actually uh, some independent group take that arrogant speech given by Justice Alito in Rome, basically ridiculing the opponents of Dobbs, doing a little victory dance, and make that a part of this. And note that in a broader sense, we have a Supreme Court that is a rogue court. It is not just partisan. It's becoming a part of the Christian nationalist movement. And that itself, showing that there are going to be other areas, despite Alito's faux warning that uh, we're not going to touch any of these other issues, and Clarence Thomas saying, oh, yes, we are. Same-sex marriage, sodomy, and contraception, we know that those are on the docket. And if they can get away with this, they're going to do other stuff. And this hits at the core of people's absolute privacy and their rights to live their lives the way they want to. And I think the contrast here is one that Democrats need to pound away at over and over and over again. We are facing threats that are not just about moving away from the democracy that we know it or challenging voting, but actually moving us to a kind of something that Republicans railed against for years, Sharia law, which was always an exaggeration and phony. This is much worse than what they were railing against that they're trying to impose on the United States. On that happy note, Norm, this is, uh, no, I'm, I'm in all seriousness, not only uh, do I find, I, I, one thing I explored as you were talking about all the avenues and ways this could go if we don't call out this Supreme Court for what it is. Um, and also, by the way, hold Biden to some of what he has long since pushed back against. And I know you and I have talked about this uh, a couple of episodes ago, expansion of the Supreme Court, which he's already said he's against. And and I think it should kick up some of this debate as well. But it reminds me that the state of Maryland, did you know we still have many states do that we take for granted sodomy laws on the books that have not been enforced. And so there's this really interesting dynamic where it won't even have to be um, it won't even have to be kind of like bizarre interpretation at the judicial level. It will just have to be a crazy governor combined with, you know, a couple of municipalities where they enforce books on the law that the public, I can promise, are not even aware of. So. All right. Let's uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us. We have too much to discuss, as usual, on each show. But I'm hoping that as we are continuing to relaunch and understand what you want to hear, please rate, review and subscribe to this on your favorite podcast player and maybe share the episode with your friends on social media. If you liked it and want to get even more, become a member of the DSR Network, get a bonus segment. And today we are going to discuss a number of developments in January 6th deliberations, along with more that we have discovered about what really happened to Secret Service texts that disappeared. But Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is Chris Cotnor, and the producer of our show is Grant Haver. The next episode will be in your podcast feeds on August 12th. See you then. So on the theme of words matter, we know some people who believe very much that words matter. Secret Service agents, uh, top officials, including the acting secretary and deputy secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, top Trump appointees at the Defense Department, 
who erased their words, got rid of the texts that undoubtedly included damning information about their involvement and interactions with the White House over the insurrection on January 6th. That's one of the big stories to emerge since our last broadcast. Yes. So I, I have to just take a moment because as a government person, one of the things that uh, felt completely implausible was, quote unquote, the loss of Secret Service text. Actually, the loss of any electronic information combined with now what we have learned not only on watchdog oversight for such information and what I think are just the incredible layers of cover-ups, but not that and what else and who else in the time period we know now that uh, Donald Trump had no official record of calls on his White House logbook, by the way, incredibly unusual considering what was happening at that time. But I have been trying to think through who else has been calling and who has been inbound from, let's say, Fox News. We had several texts that came out publicly. We know there are more and other members of the conservative media with which we know this administration had been close to. So for me, the takeaways since uh, we last spoke or touched on January 6th have been uncovering some of those layers of not just cover up, but what I would say is a mechanistic destruction of the integrity of watchdog in internal government so, like organizations whose entire job were to ha- conduct ethical oversight and provide accountability. That destruction should keep, make most people scared that parts of our democracy were decayed by the, the prior administration. And to be candid, I'm not even sure that the Biden administration can rebuild it that quickly. I think that's exactly right. We're also seeing that uh, the Justice Department is going after Peter Navarro because he apparently used a private email account to do government business. Hillary Clinton redux, except in this case, uh, in an evil fashion. And then we have this fascinating story involving Alex Jones, whose lawyer inadvertently turned over his entire text history for the past two years to the opposing counsel in the case involving Jones's defamation of the families uh, of uh, Sandy Hook. And what we know uh, is that Jones bragged that he was right in the middle of all of the negotiations surrounding January 6th, that he on his broadcast directed the Oath Keepers and others to go to the east front of the Capitol, where they had previously only been on the west front. It would not be at all surprising, first of all, that there are communications either directly with Donald Trump in those texts or indirectly through Mark Meadows that there are communications with Roger Stone, Oath Keepers, and others that might be traced back to the White House itself. And we also know, at least the reports, that there's child porn uh, on that phone. So not only is Alex Jones in big, big trouble, and a guy who went on his broadcast to say that he was declaring bankruptcy so he could avoid the judgment that was about to come in this particular case, Not only has he committed perjury over and over again on the stand, uh, so it's very likely he goes to jail for a long time, but this may be a Rosetta Stone for what remains in the January 6th case, and there's a lot that remains, and the committee is going to be, and staff will be working overtime through the remainder of August to deal with what's there. There's explosive stuff, and we have not even heard, I think, 
a third of what we're about to hear over the course of the next few months. And so, Norm, building on that, a third, I was uh, going to ask you, I, God, I, I think it's more than that. And so what next in terms of, uh, we know that the DOJ has been b- building a pretty thoughtful, deliberate case that can't expose that much because of discovery. That completely makes sense to me. It's actually not important for me to know the details of what Merrick Garland is trying to do, not trying to do. But does this give us not only in addition to what we will soon expose, but it would be interesting and maybe we can try to find someone from uh, one of the secretaries of state of one of these states we're talking about. Uh, Georgia obviously is a busy one. But how does this shift and change uh, kind of the way we think about future elections, integrity? And then my question for you is, what, it, what accountability can we put into place for future administrations? I, I would have said to you that the Norm Eisen, who is my counsel uh, during the Obama administration, he was our ethical watchdog. It, 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 he, that was his job to kind of make sure that we were held accountable as staff in the West Wing and, and privileged. But what do we do to ensure that accountability in the highest branches of power? And also, how, how does this affect the states that uh, we're talking about? Anyway, it's a more of an open question, but I am curious your thoughts on that. So we also had another development this week, which was a hearing in the Senate Rules Committee on this reform of the Electoral Count Act, which is one part of what needs to be done to put some safeguards in place. We know that January 6th and the events surrounding it was a beta test. We know that many successful coups are preceded by failed coups and they learn lessons. We also know, and this is the chilling part, that you can put laws and rules in place, but if people defy the laws and defy the rules and are able to seize power, uh, they can then rewrite those laws and rules. And we know we have a Supreme Court and a lot of state courts that may go along with that. But we have to get uh, reforms in place. We have to be sure that in November, we don't allow any of these election deniers to get elected. One other chilling piece of news that came out this week is that the Republican National Committee was working together with organizations that were election deniers and probably continuing to do so. There are a few people in the country, I believe, more vile than Ronna Romney McDaniel, the chair of the Republican National Committee. Her uh, relatives, George and Lenore Romney, would be uh, turning in their graves if they saw uh, what she is doing. Um, And I'm sure that uh, Uncle Mitt uh, at some level feels the same way. But we got a lot of efforts underway, including in a lot of states, to try and provide some of those safeguards. We just have to hope there'll be enough. I think that in addition to those safeguards, though, I, I, uh, I firmly believe that this needs to be not just safeguards that we can put into place that we hope stand the test of time, but I can't help but wonder how much more we need to put between what we have seen Secret Service and, you know, it's almost like we've, fall, we've forgotten all about, you know, Cash Patel, No Relation, and some of the other preceding events to January 6th. But I, I wonder, Norm, how much we need to start rethinking with the framers of the Constitution in mind, how much we need to re- start rethinking about the roles and responsibilities. We've got a Supreme Court. We're now knocking down every arm of what I have always grown up and been, my parents came to this country and understood as American. That, that, that should not sit well with any listener. That should not sit well with anybody. And whether that means norm aggressive expansion of the Supreme Court, which I'm now on your side, I'm in favor of. <laughs> and, and number two, ending the filibuster. Number three, I mean, we've got a long list. 
and we don't have much time to do it. So I'm hoping it starts with the Inflation Reduction Act being passed and more to come if we can. We might even be able, Democrats might even be able to keep the Senate if possible and gain seats if possible and put us in a position to kind of make some of these things a reality. Absolutely. And I, I think if, if somehow going against the grain, Democrats held the House and added a couple of seats in the Senate, all of those things that you mentioned, along with a stiff National Voting Protection Act, would be really, really important and high on that agenda. A lot of work to do over the coming months, and we'll try and do as much as we can in covering it on Words Matter.